How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm in my like fifth month of pregnancy. So actually going to a three hour movie, I couldn't decide if it was going to be like the best thing or the most uncomfortable thing. Okay. So luckily, I was super tapped into this one. So it was like a three hour reprieve of being like uncomfortable. Probably in a nice recliner and everything. Yeah, we're getting so spoiled with those. Now, whenever I go to a theater that has, I guess, like the early 2000s seating, I'm like, what is this dump? Yeah. <laughs> it's rare to see them now, but there are still theaters that have that older dated seating arrangement. So yeah, of course we had to do the recliner <laughs> seats. Um, and actually we kind of went back and forth about seeing this one on the like huge screen or the little screen, because as I told you, my parents went to it a few weeks ago and the sound for them was eh. mm. we just we, we opted to see it in the smaller theater um it was about half the size but the sound was really good so yeah it was a great experience going to it and i'm feeling good and everything too so yeah you uh i i've seen it once just maybe get into the episode sure. well thanks jody for joining me for some oppenheimer chat on the thoughtcast conversations about annihilation i mean animation <laughs> uh, it's a movie famously uh, has um, you know been touted as containing virtually no computer animation CGI. It was all completed you know using an analog process. Uh, so <laughs> I guess uh, for the sake of irony, it's it's appropriate that we're covering it today. But uh, no, it's it's uh, latest. Uh, masterpiece from Christopher Nolan, uh, one of the more renowned filmmakers who's in his prime, definitely seems like an appropriate uh, addition to his filmography. So I'm, I'm glad to have you just to, to have a little casual chat about uh, summer movies, uh, Jody. Talk about some Barbenheimer, I'm sure. Yeah, I got to hear your guys' episode the other week with Laura and Bridget. And I, I saw that one as well, but I was unable to record. So I'm happy we're getting to chat on this. I think we'd be mistaken to not talk about one of the biggest movies of the year, even if there's a lack of animation. Um mm. This one is worth, you know, kind of pivoting in the road for. The uh, fundamental essence of our material existence. Uh, what could be more animating than that? Uh, but yeah, this is your host, Philip Elke, up here in northern Minnesota. Thank you, Jody, for joining from Georgia. And uh, we'll be discussing a few things related to this film. It's all about physics uh quantum you know early uh innovations in quantum physics and of course development of you know tragic uses for fascinating technology and science uh but uh you know such is the nature of man uh kind of based loosely on the well uh, i mean i would say it, it hears as close as it can uh, for a three-hour movie probably uh to a, a very sizable uh, I'm tempted to say novel, but it's it's a it's a nonfiction biography called American Prometheus. So I don't know how familiar you are with that so source material. Uh, I'm not really yeah. familiar with it, with the exception of I did hear um, Nolan talking about it in some of his interviews, obviously referencing that material. And I guess from one of his previous movies, which I haven't seen, Tenant. He, he refers to this book as well. And it wasn't really necessarily meant as like a teaser for this upcoming project, but I, I haven't seen that one. But yeah, 
it, and it, he definitely Oppenheimer is a Prometheus or like an Adam and Eve situation. You have mm. this creation and consequence sort of rumble tumble throughout the whole thing. So mm. I love the name of the the reference book, American Prometheus. That was perfect. After some of the latest films from Christopher Nolan, it seemed perfectly you know, sensible that he would be tackling this kind of subject next. Um, the creation of the atomic bomb, the um, <laughs> division of the atom um, after a movie like uh, Tenet, which contains kind of a similar concept. I mean, that's it's all about time. This one's all about like physics and, and the atom, you know, the, the very nature of matter itself. So I guess, uh, and then something like Interstellar, it's about space. So you've had your space movie, your time movie, and now you have like the the atom. So yeah, it's it's a, he gets into some of these really nitty gritty subjects about reality. Uh, Nolan does, um, and then just builds stories around that. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, sometimes going into movies like this where you know the subject matter is going to be a little, well, for me, a lot above my head when it comes to all of that. I was worried that I was going to have to focus a lot to kind of keep myself on track with the storyline. Um, and I was also worried about going to this and leaving with like existential dread and like sleepless nights. But I thought they did a really good job making it accessible for the normal person to go and watch it. I mean, there are a few scenes where you do have to harness your attention to sort of see where things are going, not only like scientifically, but politically, hmm. because I'm not super well-rounded when it comes to, you know, World War II. I do know the, the basics of like how that all happened, but I don't know a lot about communism at the time and all that as well. But I think three hours was like the nice amount without making it too bloated. Cause if it would have been any shorter, I think my brain would have been spinning a little too much to keep uh, up with everything. Yeah. I mean, it's fun kind of ruminating about these far flung scientific concepts, but the, the movie itself is, is more getting into some real minutia surrounding the politics of the era and I think that is is sort of a very obscure subject to anyone who's not really studied this era. If you haven't read the book, um, if you haven't read up on, a lot on uh, World War II or early Cold War era politics, and it it probably feels pretty foreign, and it skips around. So yeah, it's just a, it is a lot of just uh, footage of got old guys sitting around a conference room talking it's yes but they made those odd. feel like almost like action scenes they were yeah. able to take those small rooms because you're right a lot of the scenes are within just literally a thrown together closet it seems like they didn't even you know have these big spacious courtrooms for the majority of the mm -hmm. you know the conversations that people are having and it's a lot of tight in your face scenes but they have a lot of energy and passion in them. So you don't feel like you're suffocating in these spaces. They make, you know, they're small, but they mm -hmm. make them feel big enough for all this coming mm -hmm. together. Like I said, like those are basically the action scenes of the movie, which I was surprised. I thought there'd be a, a lot more explosions and running and things, but really the, the tension comes between the people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating just hearing them uh, try to hash out all these obscure details about, you know, how Oppenheimer should be regarded, you know, by history is his reputation going to be preserved in a heroic fashion and, I mean, how is that all? How is his legacy going to be respected among the political establishment in Washington? Um, and who who actually is trying to, you know, sully his reputation and why? What are their motivations? Like, there's a whole intriguing plot having to do with that, and you know, and how deserving is someone like J. Robert Oppenheimer of being lauded for his contributions, considering? I mean, he certainly didn't have a whole lot to do with the military deployment of nuclear weapons, but he's he's the one who was in charge of developing the technology. And then after they completed their Trinity tests uh, in, in Los Alamos, uh, the, the military packed up the weapon and we're like, thank you. <laughs> Wham, bam. I know that would drive me crazy. I That scene kind of frustrated me because, you know, as they're taking away this atomic bomb that's been created, it's almost like he wants to give more input, but the military doesn't care about that. The government doesn't care about that. I believe the president actually like hands him a tissue and says, okay, like wipe the blood off your hands. Like you're good to go. Like, thanks for doing your job which is probably i mean that very much is how it is in real life i remember when we were in high school our i think chemistry teacher mr bernston is that mm -hmm. what's his name yeah we, we learned a little bit about alfred nobel who did the oh. dynamite oh, and okay. the everlasting consequences and like grief and stress that followed him for the rest of his life you know making dynamite and mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, these people juggle a lot afterwards, but they really, it, it's out of your hands once you create this, once the Pandora's box is opened, like you don't get the box back, you don't get to close it just because it was yours, you know? Yeah, well, and it's a fascinating look in the mind of a tortured genius, of course. Uh, it begins with Oppenheimer in his um I guess, graduate studies, and I don't think an undergrad, I mean, He's still in the learning process. He's still being yeah. taught. Mm -hmm. So his uh, uh, specialization in in physics, whatever he's, uh, you know, ultimately he ends up pursuing theoretical physics because uh, he he doesn't enjoy more practical applications. He, he struggles in a lab setting. And you see that with uh, you know kind of a famed recounting of him attempting to poison one of his instructors with the apple mm -hmm. yeah, quite humorous uh and i guess the bit about uh famous uh was that um oh, can, can i recall the the name of the a character the scientist um there were so many names Bra kenneth branagh um yeah, let's see. I've got the cast list uh, pulled up here. So let's see if I... Yeah, Niels Bohr is about to take a bite out of this apple that he's uh, he's taken from uh, Oppenheimer's instructor. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that'd be, you know, even more ironic if he'd accidentally killed as renowned a, a scientist as 
Niels Bohr, like one of his icon, you know, his. Uh, yeah, he had yeah. to think on his feet. He waxed it down and says wormhole, wormhole. Bohr, and yeah, the word he uses is wormhole. And and like that's a scientific term, too. Like, yeah, really I didn't know if that was like teasing us for something later down the line, like because I knew wormhole was whatever. But it turned out, no, he was just trying to get out of killing someone in that moment. <laughs> Yes, uh, I yeah, you know, you have these very eccentric people who are just yeah, that they obsess about this these subjects about science. I couldn't believe it. I in my notes I typed like I was shocked at the ego that goes into science, but it mm. makes sense. These people have dedicated their lives to it. They're very proud of what they find, but watching it, I was like when I picture a scientist, I don't picture politics. I don't picture a lot of egos. I picture just like a cute little guy with some chalk. And this really brought it to life for me. I mean, for everyone that these are real people who with, with their reputations, they want to uphold and their, um, what do you call it when you want to make it the next step up there? Um, uh, yeah, the, I guess they're your hierarchy within yeah. the science community, I guess. But mm -hmm. yeah, wanting to climb that ladder and follow their ambitions within it. Mm -hmm. I just picture scientists to be very humble because I just picture them as not weirdos, but very unique people, you know, like that just kind of have their own community. Yeah. But there's a lot of people in this movie, <laughs> which causes a lot of problems. There's a certain altruistic desire to, you know, serve the benefit of humanity if you're... Mm -hmm you know, trying to learn more about um, these things that um, really go toward uh, expanding the, the human experience and uh, our ability to kind of, you know, I guess scientific advancement has just made it so, so much more convenient for humans to congregate uh, in huge numbers i guess it, it be you know the pop the number of humans inhabiting the planet has only been made possible due to you know a lot of incredible scientific advances that are relatively recent on uh you know in historic historical terms uh yeah it, there's a lot of incentive for for people to try to game that that system you know try to you know, raise their profile as much as possible. Uh, but uh, I, I think generally it's easy to weed out people who are, um, you know, not doing it out of um, the goodness of their, their heart, <laughs> because I think a lot of times the, those kinds of people will be outed as, as frauds. You know, I, I think they have to be truly dedicated to, to the pursuit of the, field um and Absolutely. if they're yeah if they're self-centered i think and that, it, it did yeah. make me wonder like going off of this is how often are you know scientists trying to discredit you know other scientists the character that robert downey jr played was it was strauss i think that's yeah. how you pronounce it, strauss his whole mission you know it seemed like was you know to build himself up but also to tear oppenheimer down and i i was curious how many maybe scientific marvels we may have lost due to that type of energy in that community it'd be hard to say because he was so committed to it and i he's iron man correct yeah 
I loved him as this sneaky, snaky kind of scientist guy. I thought he did an amazing job. I'm not sure how many other movies he's in that aren't superhero mm. movies, but this whole cast was star-studded, and I thought he was incredibly strong um, throughout. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Louis Strauss, you know, more so a politician, but I guess um, he worked in the the atomic energy, um, some division of the government that uh oversees uh energy and yeah the you know there's a lot of wrangling and posturing uh going on he's the one who hooked Oppenheimer up with that Mm -hmm. kind of original job right of becoming a professor after you know meeting um Einstein right so he was kind of a building block in the beginning to get him situated there at least Mm mm-hmm yeah, it, it seemed like he he was purely kind of on Oppenheimer's side at first, um, but you know there there were <laughs> some rifts that formed as Oppenheimer became kind of dismissive of Strauss's position as more of just a, a political stooge than anything, um, and and yeah, that became uh, a sticking point for Strauss. He wanted respect, despite not necessarily having earned it to the degree that someone like uh, Oppenheimer has. Yeah, so American businessman, philanthropist, and na- naval officer primarily is what Strauss is. Mm-hmm. Atomic Energy Commission, AEC. There we go. Yeah. That's what it was. Uh, and you see a lot of him, well, you see a lot of everyone in the black and white versus color scenes. And I usually do not take my phone out in the theater because I think it's so rude. But once I realized they were flipping back and forth and I wasn't sure if it was like chrono, if it was trying to like show me a timeline with the black and white versus color. So I quickly like looked that up because they kick off with fission versus fusion. I'm sure you saw that. And I guess like the black and white, according to what I read, was supposed to like present the objective historical perspective. And the color was supposed to kind of be the like more subjective elements, sort of the moral struggle, the personal relationships, and less so on the like Wikipedia, I guess, if that makes sense. Like black and white was supposed to be objective and color was supposed to be subjective. So okay. that helps me out because at the end, um, my husband was like, they kept switching back and forth between the color and the black and white gradient, like what was going on? I was like, oh, it wasn't It wasn't meant to be necessarily the time. Because, you know, in, in a lot of movies, if it's black and white, you're thinking, okay, it's the olden days. But this one, I guess that necessarily wasn't the case. Yeah. Yeah, it's a stylistic choice that Nolan has made in the past. Uh, the His film Memento, his first like major studio release, uh, has sequences in black and white that are meant to be from um, an objective uh, narrator. And then the color sequences are much more from the protagonist's perspective. Uh, Guy Pierce, who's suffering from amnesia and, and the stuff that's going on from his perspective is occurring kind of in reverse order throughout the film. Uh, just an incredibly, Are you pretty familiar yeah. with his... Sorry, are you pretty familiar yeah. with his because i'm not at all so i don't yeah i didn't know if you were someone who had seen many of them yeah i've seen memento a couple times just a hugely unconventional style of uh narrative delivery uh with the with the way that film is edited but it 
you know, compliments the fact that this uh, this character is a um, you know a, a person suffering from amnesia and trying to figure out a murder plot. So it's it's a noir film, but uh, told in in a very unique perspective. Um, and then yeah, they're black and white sequences that intersperse throughout the color sequences um, as we're kind of receding in time um, that that kind of I don't know I, I think the the black and white sequences sort of they join up with the color sequences at some point it's um, the, the, the so it's something them, he's yeah. done before yeah. okay I wouldn't have had that I wouldn't have known that I thought it was super unique the way it was done in this one because I haven't seen many mm -hmm. movies that break that uh, but he's obviously had practice directing and bringing that into it um it yeah. was especially powerful I felt like in that scene my favorite scene well not my favorite scene but the scene that I felt like most personally like pulled into the story mm -hmm. was when they were um it's kind of I probably midway through the movie I lost sense of time watching this three hours truly like they once you're on this path this three hour journey I couldn't really tell what was beginning middle and like time for me went really quickly and I don't say that lightly because I was nervous I would want to like leave halfway through but I think it was towards the middle when they're middle end when they're celebrating the success of the trinity project success for better or worse whatever you want to say but um you you see that scene and you feel like the regret on his face and like the magnitude what's been done and he's giving that speech that scene was like really pulling on my heart and how it kind of like flashed between black and white and color and the people disappearing from the audience and then the dead body on the ground or whatever that part was like so so powerful mm -hmm. for me of the of the of the movie and i think they pull the black and white into that as well yeah yeah it's it's incredibly thoughtful yeah. and, and uh deliberate um just as yeah christopher nolan tends to Tends to always be keeping audiences on their toes. Just uh, endless analysis that you can do of of his styles, and, and there's a reason why he's as big of a name as he is. He was certainly able to pull in. I know I've talked about this a million times, but like Matt Damon, Jack Quaid, like Emily Blunt, his name clearly, or maybe it was the script itself. He pulled in like massive names. I was shocked every couple scenes. I would see someone. And even their roles wouldn't be that big. Rami Malek from, um, oh, the Freddie Mercury biopic. Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. Like, I I loved him in that, and I loved Mr. Yeah. Robot. But he didn't even have that many scenes. I was like, you have these giant stars coming in, and they're just doing, like, a, a short monologue or a cut. Obviously, still important players, but I... Nolan had an amazing cast. I can't... I couldn't get over that. And they were all so well-placed. I wish we had more Florence Pugh. In the, in the movie, but I'm guessing a lot of people feel that way. Yeah, uh, one of the most I don't know packed casts I've ever seen in a film. It's, it's unbelievable. But yeah, he, he kind of is given carte blanche um, to to make these. Uh, well, and especially Oppenheimer isn't a purely original idea either. It's it's maybe somewhat more of a, a safer. Um, type of film and and it wasn't you know the budget wasn't super overblown uh, but you know Nolan lo loves the visual spectacle so he made sure to make use of 
IMAX technology, you know, went applicable, um, and then you know developed some new technology. You know, the the large format IMAX film um, had never been manufactured in you know for black and white photography. <laughs> so uh, it was it was special black and white film that was made by you know Kodak or whoever manufactures of the film, uh, oh. and uh, yeah uh you know it's certainly all the kinds of things that normally nowadays you would just you know use digital processes to em emulate this look that's but, what i thought they yeah. did i didn't know that <laughs> no i mean he he edited it on uh an analog film cutting bay you know it was uh it was really a unique kind of old school clinic uh that that he put on for um just the sake of uh, preserving the art preserving the medium um i'm sure there's all kind kinds of um hobbyists who love this kind of thing who just never really get to do it on this kind of scale um just the <laughs> the pure i mean most of the time when we think about movies we think about the story and the actors and you know the spectacle the effects the you know the visuals um you know with but with people who are really in the industry you know they get their um you know the jones off of the <laughs> uh, like the, the technology yeah what kind of film stock you know well <laughs> that makes like this even more impressive because i i had heard when i was listening to the interview that there was like 11 miles straight of film like if you were to like unroll the film the three hours of film yeah 11 miles long i don't know necessarily if that's true or not i don't know if you saw that anywhere but if that is know. true that is insane yeah makes sense um i i did see this in analog film 70 millimeter uh it was it was cool just to to hear the clicking of the projector when and uh yeah there was definitely a noticeable switch over from the trailers to the film itself <laughs> when it started and then kind of you know it's it's a little bit darker than you get from your typical digital projection projection nowadays but you know it, there there's a certain i guess uh quality like if you're really into or if you see a lot of movies you can pick up kind of the subtle differences between just the standard digital presentation and uh and that classic you know cycling of the frame by frame on a on an analog strip of you know film strip yeah i feel like you saw the authentic movie i know i saw the real movie as well but mine <laughs> wasn't like that um yeah huh. i don't know it's it you know it's classy i i like that a lot if you have the budget and the skill set to do something like that it makes it even more impressive to me i didn't realize until we kicked off this episode that there wasn't cgi i kind of find that hard to believe but i'm guessing you have a good source for well, it well um th there might have been a few things t tossed in here and there um but if if they were they, they would have had to have been um printed out on film because i mean even before um films could be handled all digitally um you would have to have certain elements you know that were composed in a, in a computer 
still printed in in film so they could be edited together with the rest of the film you know back in the late 80s early 90s you know when when film was standard i remember the days when projectors were um still primarily using uh celluloid film and you know the single house movie theater in our hometown uh you know that it took a while for them to get a digital projector so that was always kind of noticeable how you'd go to like the neighboring towns that had the multiplexes (laughs) um and there was the brighter screens you know a bit yeah much better we'd have the tick 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 of the actual film yeah yeah we we had that for a lot longer than a lot of places (laughs) and it it wasn't necessarily great but at least there was a certain charm to it Mm-hmm. And I mean, for a movie like this, the tick, tick, tick is quickly overcome with the score. I read somewhere that the score was playing 90% of the movie, which I did not notice. Mm-hmm. I, the score, I think, fits so well with the sequencing of events that I did notice it. I thought it was like beautiful, but it wasn't like, wow, this song's been playing for two and a half hours, you know, or when it got really quiet and then the score would come back again. It wasn't distracting at all. I'm not sure who did the music with this one, but I, when I had found out how off, how throughout the whole movie it was playing, I was like, wow, I literally didn't even notice because that's how perfect it was with the theming of what was happening. Was it uh, the Ludwig again? Yeah, Ludwig Göransson, who did the score for um, Tenant, and he also, I don't know if you've seen like The Mandalorian on disney oh, yeah. plus okay he did the themes for that um you know just a very hugely pro- prolific yeah especially um in in current in the current era of film because he's fairly up and coming i like still still pretty young this this little big Garnson. um black panther uh did famously uh yeah the the score sounded like kind of a Hans Zimmer-esque Christopher Nolan film (laughs) I -hmm. thought I I definitely felt like I was watching a Christopher Nolan film um even though yeah this type of sort of political drama biopic wouldn't need something that ambitious sounding uh it uh did you like it though like yeah yeah or did you yeah. think it was a bit too much? You know, when I'm going to a movie like this, especially, you know, something that's being played up for IMAX and large format screens, they'll see the spectacle of the testing of the first atomic bomb. You want a certain epic feel to it. And the score delivered that in spades, uh, you know, perhaps to the point of excess in some ways, just considering the 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 way that 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 wasn't really this movie um for for the majority of the runtime uh but hey i i'd rather have it than than not at all i i you know there are other versions of this movie that would have been just completely dry um and i th- think that was kind of more what um the previous adaptation of this subject maybe was i i think we oh, are there other movies that if- or this that aren't just like documentaries in 1989 there was the movie fat man and little boy where mm. 
Okay, Palm Newman plays Leslie Groves. Uh, Dwight Schultz plays J. Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, this and this movie doesn't have the most exceptional reputation. Roland Joffe, Joffe, uh, is the director. Uh, I don't know where we shown bits of this movie. Like if we were, it was so kind of forgettable that it's, it's understandable that this movie doesn't have that um recognizable profile i remember yeah john cusack was in it and like i think his character dies he gets radiation poisoning or something i remember oh. that detail but kind of an obscure film uh fat man and little talking about radiation poisoning one thing so as soon as i left the theater i had like questions on how much was exaggerated, how much was real. And I had questions about how the atomic bomb worked, when we dropped it, were the Japanese actually gonna surrender? What was communism? I was like Googling everything on the drive home. Mm. And um, one question I had that crossed my mind is when they're doing the trend effect and they blow it up when Mm. they succeed at that bomb. I don't know if that bomb had a name, but- um, Yeah, just Trinity. Trinity, okay, the the Trinity went off. Or the or, gadget. <laughs> yeah, the gadget. Okay, when the gadget goes off and, you know, the sound stops completely. And we know, obviously, living in 2023, there's, like, radiation risk yeah. after the explosion. The people who were sitting and watching, like, from two miles away, you know, the whole team with their sunblock on and their little <laughs> pieces of yeah. plastic over their eyes, were they not at risk for the radiation exposure? Because you hear later in the movie that those bombs that went off in Japan and Hiroshima and um, the other city. Uh, Nagasaki, yeah. Yeah, they were saying that, you know, like the initial impact was, I think, 70,000, but the over the radiation. So then I was like, was was not the radiation a factor with the test with Trinity? I couldn't, I tried Googling it and I couldn't really figure it out at that point. But did you question that at all? Or did you not? I don't know how much Googling Mm. you did afterwards. No. Well, that's a good point because the effects of the bombs that were used in Japan had, you know, kind of far reaching implications with their radiation uh, contaminating the region. But, uh, you know, they were just um, detonated over such highly populated areas that, um, you know, you could concentrate. Um, a lot of radiation into an area that would be affected by um, people who are trying to inhabit that place and and then getting poisoned by it. Whereas, you know, with the Los Alamos detonation, it's just so remote. Um, That's true. It was just open. And was that supposed to be Oppenheimer's family land? Do do you remember at the beginning when he and his brother, they kind of gallop off into the wind and is that supposed to be his place? Like, cause at the end he's like, they're like, what do you want to do with Los Alamos? And he's like, give it back to the Indians. And then Strauss or someone is kind of encouraging him. Like it's time to work on the next big weapon of mass destruction. But I don't know. I guess the, the U S government has a lot of federally owned property in that region because it's, it's just so much desert. It's not really usable land. Um, so I'm sure they were able to just find a uh, spot. appropriate, yeah, lo- you know, large tracts of uh, public land. 
Yeah. So yeah, uh, Leslie Groves, by the way, that was Matt Damon's character in Oppenheimer, and that's who Paul Newman plays in the. He's kind of the central lead character in Fat Man and Little Boy. So it's a little bit of and a different perspective. Yeah. A patrolman, or not a patrolman, but like he is not a scientist, right? He's the one who's sort of like in the cop attire throughout. Like he, uh, I don't know. His... He's a military. Okay, military yeah. guy. He has the mustache, Matt Damon, yeah. Matt Damon. Yeah, Groves. Um, I don't know a ton about his background, but um, you know, he, he did have a, a bit of a science background as well. You know, kind of like how Strauss was on the Atomic Energy Commission. Um, Groves was assigned to oversee um things related to you know the like the manhattan project uh, he he commissioned the manhattan project um hired uh, oppenheimer and, and i guess had to kind of deal with all the political uh, ramifications of you know the biases of the, the scientists these academics you know academics kind of notorious for having more utopian you know communistic uh, political leanings that aren't quite as uh partial to the rah-rah patriotism that you would hope in some sort of military-led endeavor. I never realized, the thing I like about movies like this, well, not only does it make you realize Albert Einstein wasn't alive like 400 years ago, but like, <laughs> like much close, you know, it makes it more real. But even things like communism, which I know about and I've heard about and I've read about, there's something really like tangible about seeing it kind of play a role in a movie like this because you hear about it, but seeing people like do it in action in what feels like modern day, I guess. Hmm. I I hadn't realized that communism was such a, I knew it was a divider, but yeah. the way that it's being juggled in this movie and kind of is like kind of that line, you do not cross, you do not talk about it. You don't, you don't associate with, I, I guess I didn't know that within the US it was that like, mm -hmm. like spicy of a topic. I don't know what you'd call it or <laughs> like that like detrimental of a thing to be associated mm. with or, or not associated with and i felt like the the movie did a good job letting communism communism play a factor but also not like hyper focusing on that either and still like not letting that pull away from the plot of the movie do you know what i mean like if it was, it was referenced yeah. enough so you realized like what a critical factor it was at the time and honestly still but um I thought I thought that was really good and it made it feel a lot more real to me because when people kind of say communism now I just think of it as like another label you throw out there but seeing it have actual consequence on mm. his career and on a lot of people's like livelihoods I, I don't know I hadn't realized that before watching this movie yeah you know it's, it was a huge uh trend for you know intellectuals to to want to aspire to some higher order of oh i think i would have been a communist like i would have i would have drank the kool-aid like i don't know yeah. i feel like i probably would have but even the people who left that party 20 years ago i mean emily blunt's character i can't remember oh. her name jackie no not jackie uh, um, kitty 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 mm -hmm. um jackie was the sister-in-law but kitty hadn't been part of it for 20 years but that was enough to sort of sully her <laughs> her name, her, her yeah. reputation. And I was like, wow, I, maybe I'm not going to sign up for any parties because I would hate for that to be 
something down the line, you know? Yeah, it gets tricky once you start, you know, putting, you know, drawing lines in the sand, you know, staking into the ground. You know, this is where I, I stand politically. And Oppenheimer yeah. couldn't do that. You know, he was in that odd position of he probably, I mean, he had opinions, mm -hmm. but his task at hand, you know, this project was the more encompassing thing. But I, you've seen Hamilton, correct? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Aaron Burr and Aaron Burr kind of is always like if if you stand for nothing what do you fall for or whatever trying to determine like Aaron Burr kind of follows the um the opportunities where they come he's not really like aligned necessarily super tight with any side and I was like that's kind of sometimes what you have to do to get the job done I think in Oppenheimer's case because had he pulled one direction or the other he would have alienated a lot of his coworkers or people funding the project and it, whether or not you want the atomic bomb to be built, like it wouldn't have been maybe if he had picked a, a road. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was wise for him to just focus on his profession and stick to the science. It's just a natural kind of part of being part of the academic institutions of the time. You would have the various allegiances that you try to find new ways of <laughs> elevating ourselves as a as a human society past uh, sort of these tribalistic horrors that that you know resulted in things like the the world wars. Um, so it, understandable, yeah. The, it's like how do we avoid something like World War One happening again? Like how do we uh, organize ourselves as a as a political entity, but yeah, it's, it didn't really, you know, we had the repeat with World War II and yeah, humans are, are messy. Conflict <laughs> continues to, to this immediate moment. That reminds me of another thing I really liked about how this movie came together. Um, I was expecting to see, you know, knowing that the bombing is coming at the end, of course, I was expecting more like, scenes of like tragedy or gore or death or loss but they do a great job emphasizing that grief and pain and like human suffering without actually I mean I think there's only one scene where you see in his vision a crusted up burned up body mm -hmm. but they don't like pan the cities in Japan you know they're able to get that horror across without showing death which I, I really liked because sometimes scenes like that are just like a a lot to take in especially with a movie like this and i appreciated the way they were able to project that without those types of scenes in it i i didn't know how it was going to be once the mm -hmm. the bombs actually were that detonated mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah um you know the, it wasn't like uh exploitive of the the tragedy uh, i mean in some ways it's important to try to get a grasp what things were like on the ground um, in in places like Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki and, and like the photos that we have, you know, they're not great. They're, they're old, you know, from the they're 40s. Old. We, yeah. Within this year, we were down in New Orleans and they have the World War II museum there. And it's like a three-story huge building where you basically walk through the war. And it has a lot of that imagery and films playing and sounds going and whatever. And so maybe I feel like I've been exposed enough, but you're right. There maybe are some people who haven't seen that direct impact 
imagery, but for me personally, I'm, I'm happy that the, the movie didn't include that, but still made it impactful enough that there was that death. I think they said, what, 240,000 people yeah, were no, dead either on the spot or within the couple weeks following. I just can't. It's so scary. It's scary. And then that final scene, I know we're not there yet, but that final scene before you leave the theater, you're at hour three and it shows the atomic bomb. If if the reaction had kept repeating, 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 and like the whole world is being destroyed, I'm like, that is just so terrifying. Yeah. That's so terrifying. <laughs> that the premise of the yeah the the reaction that never ceases, and I don't know that that's a concept that's existed in other pieces of fiction. Um, I don't know. It's thinking of like. Uh, Planet of the Apes, one of those films has the Alpha Omega bomb that's capable of, you know, a single detonation destroying uh, the entire or, you know, basically igniting the entire atmosphere. I feel there's something else where that happens as well. But um, I, it's yeah, it's it, <laughs> it's, uh, I guess, a, a theoretical possibility. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, what did he not. say? He's like, well, it's a less than zero percent chance. What would make you feel better than that? He said, I think Matt Damon was like a 0% chance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not less than zero. He said something like 0, 0.0 something, whatever. And that it is, even if there's like 0.005% chance that this whole world is going to be over due to this Trinity test. Mm -hmm. uh, is that even like a chance you want to take with humanity? I, I am not the right type of person to ever make decisions like that. I guess for better mm -hmm. or worse, the bombs were dropped, but you do wonder like how, if, if history would have been a lot different or if someone else was going to introduce the atomic bomb, you know, two months later, you always have, have to wonder that as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, I mean, at least the, the war ended, I guess it's a uh, one silver lining you can take from the, uh, atomic usage. Uh, yeah. I guess it's, it's also interesting that we were able to to do it once and thankfully never uh, again since <laughs> um, yeah, it gets it gets worrisome just knowing that humans have the tools for that and mm -hmm. we get so caught up i liked the with the cinematography going from like we get from these like heated hot moments in these little offices and everyone's egos are flying everywhere and fighting and misunderstanding and then it would go out to these big open Arizona thunderstorms and fields and the desert and the trees. It was Arizona, right? These big scenes. Um, or New Mexico. Almost New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. New Mexico. These beautiful like New Mexico scenes. And it's like, man, can't we just like look at this earth and like the beauty of this earth? And I know it's not that simple, but just like not do this. I know that the bombs had a purpose, you know, but but aside from that, I was like, man, our earth is so pretty and so like we're so blessed to have all these things and yet like we're so close to just destroying it every time there's mm. these conflicts which is you know, it's just a lot there's a lot i reminded of um an audiobook by malcolm gladwell i listened to called the bomber mafia you know it's, it's about the aerial bombardment of japan leading up ultimately to the use of uh, atomic weapons but I mean, that involved the leveling of cities through the use of napalm. And I mean, that that certainly wasn't any less destructive in its overall 
implementation. Um, but you know, it just wasn't able, it, it wasn't the same, you know, psychological shock in terms of its payload. The plume and the fire and the mm-hmm. dew of that, that moment. Yeah. That's hard to, I, it's hard to even like seeing it on a big screen like that, comprehend it happening in real life, all the sound with the bomb went off as well. Right. It's just so impactful. Um, the images they used. Yeah. The, the, um, atomic bomb had a yield of around 25 kilotons and that's a thousand times less than kind of the more modern fusion bomb that would come kind of shortly afterwards the h-bomb and you know they they would test those in the pacific ocean the bikini atoll tests um you know with the explosions that are just you know, orders of magnitude larger and, and, you know, famous footage of those that sort of dwarf, you know, the, the explosion scene in, in Oppenheimer, you know, recreated in spectacular fashion, but still like if you're more accustomed to seeing those more, you know, contemporary nuclear explosions, then, then the one scene here in, in this film um, you know, as cool as it is that they went through the effort to to reconstruct it, you know, using the sort of practical methods that they used, um, it's it's really kind of uh, wimpy overall uh, compared to, <laughs> to those. Don't say yeah. that. I wish I wish they hadn't gone. Yeah. I wish after the atomic bomb they say, "All right, we created this. Like, let's call yeah. it a day." But the truth is, like, like they said, I mean not progress, but people are going to keep marching on. Like, what is the next project? How do we make it bigger, stronger, better, faster? And that's, I mean, that's mankind. And that's that story of Prometheus. You know, he gave them the fire, gave us the fire, the human people. Mm -hmm. And it just caused chaos. You know, we couldn't handle it. And we, hopefully we can handle our weapons, but I'm unsure about that, honestly. I'm, I'm glad that the movie explored some of these concepts, like the discussion between Oppenheimer and um was Teller, Edward Teller played by Benny Safdie, you know, about about the difference between fission uh, reactions and, and fusion reactions. And yeah, like you you would create this you know super bomb by having, you know, tons of of little miniature, I guess, uh atomic bomb explosion or going off inside of the capsule. Yeah, it's it's uh you, you get to know a little bit about the anatomy of the bomb itself. It's this uh you know cylinder and oh they showed shots of that at the end, I think. I didn't know what those were. I thought they were like little rockets, but I think that's yeah. what you're referring to because they showed some, some quick scenes towards the end, and I think it's probably referencing that. I don't know. Uh, of course this movie does get a little risque at times, uh, sort of the sexual nature of, of some of the decisions in, in this movie uh, almost reflect the the process by which this bomb is detonated, where it, it's a cylinder being shot into another cylinder, <laughs> um, creating the, you know, the surface area friction required to generate enough energy to cause the fission reaction to uh, yeah huh. to cascade and then ultimately detonate into an explosion um yeah so 
It's uh... <laughs> I didn't think about that at all. All I remember is after the movie, some people online on TikTok were saying like Florence Pugh had a bad body. And I just remember being like, what movie did you guys watch? <laughs> like, and I mean, I'm not happy that he had those love affairs, um, but no one had a bad body in that movie <laughs> for the record, <laughs> for, no. for the record. But no, I didn't put those two together, what you were saying. No, I, yeah, I, I'm just trying to just kind of figure out. Yeah, it wasn't exploitive when it came to showing gore and, and destruction. You know, we don't see Japan. Um, and and that that aroused some controversy from a political perspective, considering, um, you know, you, you would maybe expect some Japanese representation within the cast of this film. Um, but I guess that, that just wasn't the focus. Um, but then you do have these scenes that where Christopher Nolan is for the first time depicting fairly explicit sexual situations on screen. He's mostly known for being a very kind of chaste director. Uh, you know, all his previous films pretty much have been PG-13 with a few exceptions, and they've all been pretty much void of... Do you think you know, that he was supposed to be, you know, kind of expressing this, like, vulnerability, or was it supposed to be expressing some type of, like, sin or bad decision? Did did you read much on why they decided to include that? Because there were scenes that could have been shown without the nudity, specifically when they're just sitting mm -hmm. in those chairs, smoking and talking and having a drink naked. Yeah. I wonder if it was supposed to be that, like, with Florence, he felt himself more? Or, mm -hmm. or or I don't know if there was a reason, if you were able to find a specific reason why in this movie in particular he he brought that kind of more out in the open. Yeah, what you're picking up on is certainly um, what was the intention. Um, yeah, you want to feel vulnerable in these circumstances of extreme human tragedy and pathos uh yeah the the american prometheus you know it, it is yeah like an adam and eve type story so that's that's kind of what i gleaned it's it's like you're watching adam and eve in their natural habitat uh, right. and, the, and the, you know they eventually fall and sin and uh that that's you know that was sort of oppenheimer's folly yeah, he had multiple affairs from what I read later on. And they do reference another one outside of Kitty because technically Kitty would have been an affair as well because she was married um, with, upon meeting. But men are just, not just men, but people like to have their affairs. And I, I liked that they showed those scenes and humanized him and brought in more like mm -hmm. personal moments of life that necessarily like didn't tie in with the science. Um, but they also didn't push some type of love story line on us. Like they tapped into it enough to show these human emotions, but I think it would have been distracting had it been much more than what they gave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad it wasn't, uh, you know, certainly anymore, but yeah, it's, it, it would have been jarring to certain viewers. I'm sure. Uh <laughs> I uh, and now in my 30s, it's like, yeah, I know what a human body looks like. So. <laughs> exactly. So, I exactly. Mean, Florence Pugh, she's she's definitely one of my major beautiful. crushes out there. Yeah. It's, it's and awesome. Emily Blunt is beautiful, too. I didn't recognize. I'm used to seeing her blonde hair, I feel like. And for in the beginning with that red lipstick, I didn't realize it was her. 
And then later, later in the film, I did both great actresses, a million mm -hmm. times great cast. I know I've said that 18 times, but great cast. What was the budget? Did you stumble across it at all? Yeah, it was $100 million, which was, you know, reasonable for a movie th th that's been this hyped. Yeah, it got pay paid off, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very kind of interesting release alongside Barbie, where both films were a, a very resounding splash. And such different topics, but also <laughs> both kind of show like just the human condition. I, I don't know. I, they, they were both wonderful and so, so different. But I bet if we had a podcast on what made them the same, we could find a lot of similarities um, yeah. within there, which is the fun thing about stories is sometimes they boil down to these very similar themes. But I, I loved both. And I'm, I'm really happy we got a chance to talk about this one because a lot of my friends haven't seen it yet. We, I'm more on the Barbie girl mm -hmm. <laughs> friend group. Um, but I, I, now that I've seen Oppenheimer, I would recommend it to any of my friends. I, I was hesitant because what it came out a month ago. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it right away. And I, I'm really glad now that I have. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely wanted to see it in like IMAX. It, it, all the screenings um, in the Twin Cities area were really booked up right away when I checked. Um, and but I did manage to find this AMC screening that was in 70 millimeter, uh, just kind of a standard sized uh, screen. But it it was, you know, it, it was a nice AMC. So it was big compared to what I'm used to. And uh, yeah, seeing it in analog was really cool. Uh, you know, the IMAX, they're all digital here in Minnesota. There are certain ones in, in different locations that are like the you know, film stock IMAX, the 70 millimeter IMAX that uh, Christopher Nolan would recommend you go see. We can't all afford to travel, <laughs> Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Tickets are already $24 a person. Yeah. Um, but that's, I, I'm happy you got to see it on the big screen. Like I said, before we started filming, I did see it on a smaller screen because our theaters, some people, People had been reporting that on the larger screen, there was a bit of a sound balance issue. No. And I knew a lot of the spoken word was not hushed, but but quieter dialogue. And for mm -hmm. me, I needed to be able to hear everything. So I, I did see it on a smaller screen. I sacrificed that, but the sound balance was perfect. I didn't miss, I don't think I missed a word. I didn't understand every word when they spoke about the theories, mm -hmm. but I, I got to catch it all. Yeah. Yeah, um, the the visual aspects of it are are kind of brief when considering like the the way it's been touted as oh the the IMAX experience of the the summer, uh, but you know it's it's just uh, kind of cool to see the the way that this was a, a uniquely put together film um, for you know twenty twenty three. Uh, you know, I, I waited to, I think, the end of the credits. Uh, I only saw it once, uh, you know, sadly. I've been kind of busy lately. I haven't been able to make it back to the theaters. But, you know, it said, you know, completely filmed and finished in uh, in 70 millimeter film or whatever it said at the end. So I was like, oh, that's that's unique. Yeah, the, just uh, a, uh, an interesting legacy. The American Prometheus, uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, not not necessarily the biggest household name in terms of like figures of the 20th century but uh 
you know, clearly someone who ought to be studied and and known uh, based on um, just the, this treatment that we're getting here with this film. Yeah, and, thanks to this movie, I think at least for our generation, we're a little more tapped into this legacy for better or worse. And I think the film did a good job showing him as, I mean, obviously he comes off as kind of the hero, but it also shows, you know, the downfalls of, of some of the decisions and everything. So I like when a movie like that can kind of tap us back into our history, especially when you hear about how, and you see how history repeats itself. Yeah. Uh, it was, I think it was a timely release because, you know, we have weapons and conflicts still today, <laughs> <laughs> today to worry about. So yeah, yeah, it was a good subject to bring and a, a surprising one for a summer movie hit, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, technological innovations could be on the horizon having to do with unlocking the secrets of quantum physics, but but doing so could come at, at a just a hugely tremendous cost that we don't even really we're not capable of fully grasping as of yet. Uh so I thought, yeah, this would be an appropriate exploration of those similar kinds of topics. I mean, now we have you know the the whole UFO situation and vehicles supposedly capable of you know traveling through uh means that are beyond you know the the realm of our conventional physics have you seen the the film the ufo like released film well yeah i've seen all kinds of these different um videos that, that have been officially like declassified and stuff here's what i think if there's ufos and they're mm -hmm. They're flying by the United States. They see us. They see our atomic bombs. They see our decisions. And they're, they're probably locking their doors and speeding past. I don't think these aliens really want anything to do with yeah. this kind and humankind right now. We have a lot going on that I don't think they want to entangle themselves in. So I think for now, like, let's focus on the <laughs> the on Earth issues and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll explore those UFOs sure. later. <laughs> That's my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking of our problems in terms of like energy and propulsion. Like uh, mm -hmm. if we could solve the world's energy problems by not having to rely on fossil fuels or uh, to either power our grid or our vehicles and, you know, use whatever technology is allowing these uh, what are they, Tic Tacs to, to fly around like they do you know, flying cars, like in the Jetsons, things like that. I mean, uh, that that might be some kind of crazy quantum technology that could allow for that type of thing, you know, anti-gravity. But then once you mess with like the laws of gravity, then then what does that, you know, potentially unlock in terms of uh, <laughs> dire? It is, it's it's biting the apple with these these things. And I'm so grateful for scientists that have the brain and the will and the 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 drive to figure these things out but as the outside looking in it is it is scary and the inside looking out is scary it, all of these advances and they're happening faster and faster and faster and this movie was such a good reminder of the consequence that comes from creation yeah yeah um i mean it's it's good to just kind of celebrate our humanity and and live humbly simply um you know he gets handed an award at the end and kind of kind of it uh he didn't get to retain his uh yeah what a bittersweet ending okay sure. i want to talk about that really quick before we, we hop off but einstein had said to him at the beginning you we we aren't sure as the viewer what he says but strauss thought it was about him or whatever but it turns out he was saying you know because einstein also i mean uh oppenheimer sort of 
not scoffed his work. I mean, he built off of it um, and went to the theory side. But, you know, Einstein saying like, there's going to come a time where you get a pat on the back and they're going to shake their hand, your hand. And maybe that's their way of apologizing, but it's not for you. It's for them. <laughs> and it's kind of a lonely, a lonely ending feeling. And you can see why Einstein would just want to throw rocks in the water and walk in the woods after going through that circus of it all and, and how it does really come mm -hmm. full circle with Oppenheimer in that moment. Oh yeah. For, see, there's so much in this movie. I loved that scene as well, just because I thought it was very powerful. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, cool to see kind of a, a, a depiction of Einstein too, with this film. It's I did. I did Google the Einstein thing. Cause I wanted to know how much of that was accurate. And they said, the interactions in in reality historically were were much 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 less. However, for the movie's sake, Einstein is supposed to represent that scientific community and that body of scientists, and it was easier to have him sort of be that voice instead of like explaining that it was the community voice. But um, but yeah, still they they met each other, and it's it's weird because whenever I think of Einstein, I literally think of like the 1500s and this movie <laughs> reminded me how wrong I was. Um, <laughs> so, in those pictures in our science rooms growing up, yeah. it'd be like a black and white poster of Einstein made it look like it was a <laughs> caveman, you know? So you see him in color walking around. It's a lot yeah. more. He, uh, he kind of did his own know. thing. You know, <laughs> he had the wild hairstyle. I, I appreciate. Yeah. He was, he was uh, an iconoclast in fashion and this uh, mm -hmm. genius. Um, the, the, I, I reminded, I think you might've posted on Facebook uh, an image from a different film that is maybe a bit more a reflection of the, the traditional Hollywood uh, description of like nuclear warfare. And uh, I, I think it, it was related to the heat in Georgia. I don't know, Jody, was that... <sighs> Yeah, that was me. <laughs> the the nuclear uh, explosion in from uh, Terminator, <laughs> Terminator Two. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't see anything like that in this film. Uh, no. I thought we would, and I'm I'm happy we didn't. But you're right. I could see how people on the other side maybe did want a little more of that to show the reality of this blast. <laughs> I mean, obviously, mine was posted as a joke. I was saying like the breeze down here in Georgia feels like that. But but yeah, <laughs> exactly. Pretty hilarious. So I mean, at least we do have imagery like that that does exist out in the cinema ecosystem. You know, we these are memes that you can go find yourself. And um, so if you're if you feel, um, you know, jilted by Oppenheimer and some of the you know, lack of wild, you know, visual spectacle depicting, you know, mass carnage, then uh, then just go watch Terminator 2 or, you know, all the various uh, <laughs> clips that exist on online. Um, but yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up, uh, you know, our discussion on, on Oppenheimer from uh, from Christopher Nolan. Um, yeah, Jody, any other final things to say before we sign off? No, I, I look forward to seeing more of his work. And honestly, I, I hope that this spurs even more biopics at this level of hmm. cinema. I, I Like I said, I really liked the music biopics that have come out, Elvis, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Elton John Rocketman. But this is kind of my first science-y one. And now I'm a lot more open to seeing these types of movies because they're really enjoyable even if the subject 
doesn't pop out at you organically. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly a subject that's always been fascinating to me with the um, quantum physics and just uh, unlocking the potential of um, he, of reality. Um, you know, I've, I've, if you love sci-fi, you know, this is the nuts and bolts that, that leads to then the authors and, and ideators, uh, futurists who come up with sci-fi concepts kind of um, fuel their imagination. Um, and then, yeah, Christopher Nolan himself, you know, uh, it'd be fun to see him contribute even more to, to that field as well. You know, he, he did Interstellar. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything on the immediate horizon for, for Nolan. Um, I can't recall. My brain's kind of shot right now, but um, it's five o'clock yeah. here i totally feel it too oh, the we're, day is very we're getting another dune soon so i get you know. oh and i don't know if anyone out there is interested but i know you liked the dracula from the i think 80s but there mm -hmm. is like i haven't heard if it's good or bad but if you're bored this weekend i think it's called the the cruise oh, of the, the demeanor the, yeah something like that. The, the, something like that there is like a little dracula spinoff i don't know if it's good i don't know if it's bad but i'm gonna check it out and privately I'll DM you my my thoughts on that one. But but yeah, other than that, Dune 2 I'm looking forward to. And there's a lot of animated stuff coming out. Mm -hmm. um, Teen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just came out. There's another Trolls movie. Uh, um, there's a lot, there's a lot coming this fall. So I'm looking forward to that. I think we're kind of through that dry spell, hopefully, yeah. of movies. Fun stuff. Yeah, a lot of upheaval within Hollywood. So there'll be some delays, but you know, it. It'll all come eventually. And it's like if things are delayed, that just gives us more time to catch up on the inevitable things that we missed, you know, with all the glut. There's so much content. <laughs> content. Yeah. Uh, Every time I turn on any streaming thing, I'm like, should I be watching? No, you know, so. But I'm a sucker for something in the theaters. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this uh, Twisted Metal series on Peacock right now. Kind of a guilty pleasure based on a video. Is that what it's called? Twisted, tw metal? Twisted metal. Yeah. It's like vehicle combat it's it's actually very charming anthony mackie is in it uh stephanie beatry's from um brooklyn 99 but also encanto she is it sort of that apocalyptic thing yeah. i may have seen some for it that's it i don't know if i would call that show looking like it would be charming but it probably is something to check out it's it's a action comedy so uh, yeah it's it's uh i I thought it maybe didn't look so great based on some of the early clips, but, uh, you know, Will Arnett does a pretty good job doing this voice. Um, you know, it's sort of a character reminiscent of like Mad Max villain. Uh, but you know, it's, you know, they got a, a big guy doing the, the physical performance and then Will Arnett's doing kind of this arch dramatic voice and, you know, I, I didn't know if it would totally work, but it works for the, you know, for, for what the show is. And then, yeah, the these characters, Anthony Mackie and Stephanie Beatrice, you know, they're uh, they've got a nice chemistry together. And it's uh, what, what's the protagonist in, in Encanto's name? Um, oh, the, the Mirabelle. Mirabelle. Yeah, <laughs> it's Mirabelle. And uh, and the, the Falcon. Oh, it's her voice actor. Is yep. acting in that? Yep. Oh wow. Sure. Okay, I will. I'll, I'll give it an episode and see how 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 I feel. Yeah. That's fun. That's cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very interesting. But I don't know. There's just so much stuff. That's just one example. But yeah. All right. Well, uh, the, everyone out there, you, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Jody. 
for joining. Yeah, yeah. Um, conversation about animation. Visit thodcast.com at thodcast on Twitter and Instagram at Philip Elke, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Twitter is it? You know, I, I feel like it's interchangeable whether you want to still call it Twitter or not. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Jody, any anything you want to plug before we we go? Uh, no, you guys, I'm I'm too pregnant to do anything but hop on here for maybe like an hour or so a week. But yeah. maybe when I have a baby, I'll be <laughs> online more. Hopefully not. <laughs> but no, this is where you can catch me, and hopefully we'll be discussing some more animation really soon. Fun. Thank you. Or annihilation, either way. <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, the, the future is uh, bright. I gotta wear shades. Uh, for the podcast for Jody. Uh, you all have a magical day, a wonderful week, warm hugs. Mm-hmm.